0: Hi guys, you are listening to The Twenties Podcast with me, Aisha Williams. Today I bring you episode seven where we have Danny Fay, aka Files, here to speak to us about being a renowned hip hop and garage MC back in his twenties named Fallacy. He's also going to speak to us about the birth of his creative company, The 30 Pound Gentleman. And Danny is a very respected guy amongst creatives in Manchester, so I'm glad I fully know why now. So I'll stop talking. Enjoy, guys. Danny, what is the best thing you did and the best thing you saw in your 20s?
1: The best thing I did in my 20s was become a parent. Um, Becoming a parent at 20, actually, like shortly after my 20th birthday. Um, And parenthood, especially like young parenthood, it's, um, I've had the opportunity to like literally grow up with my daughter. Um, you know, so she's like, she's 21 now. So becoming a parent, uh, having a lot of responsibility young, but also being like, you know, young enough and energetic enough to like climb trees and swim in the ocean and do all the kind of like crazy youthful stuff that your children might expect of you was um it was dope. So that was definitely the best thing I did in my twenties was become a parent. Um the best thing I saw was the world. I had the opportunity to travel when yeah. I was very young, um in music in the music business. So being able to travel and see the world definitely um gave me a perspective and a world view. Um broaden my horizons in a way that I wouldn't have if I was only kinda you know still still in London and not getting out of the city very much like in my early early twenties.
0: Danny aka Fowls the 30 pound gentleman himself joins me today. Danny how are you?
1: Hello I'm good thank you. How are you?
0: I'm all right I'm all right doing well in this quarantine that we're in. How are you fine yeah. it?
1: Yeah, it's um, it it has its ups and its downs. You know, sometimes you have a good day, sometimes you have a bad day. I don't think um, anybody's supposed to have the answers. You know, mm. this is like a a kind of once in a lifetime for everybody, crazy historic event to live through. So nobody's got the answer. You know, just day get, by day, sometimes just you gotta know? wait
0: it out. Yeah. Are you still like as busy? Keeping busy, keeping
1: sane. Yeah. Yeah, uh, actually, like. It kind of feels like there's not been that much change in the business. Early on, because we've got friends in sort of like Central Europe and people in Italy, Spain, Prague, we kind of knew what was coming, you know, in terms of the business. So mid February, I went and did all my disaster shopping. My my, missus thought I was crazy. (laughs) But um, mid February, you know, we kind of got prepared. Um, And then by early March, Work started to shrink a little bit, but that meant that, you know, it was time to be responsive really and sort of start to talk to people about different projects and more online work. So actually the original workload was reduced for the season, but we've ended up with kind of more yeah, um, throughout this situation. So yeah, I, I feel um, quite lucky and, um, you know, a lot of gratitude for like keeping my business afloat. I know not everybody's in the same um, situation. So yeah, I feel, you're feel very blessed
0: really. Yeah, you're lucky you can kind of transform to this online blitz that we're having to go through now. I think I um, have a habit of introducing people for themselves. So I'm going to let you just briefly introduce like, what you do at the moment at 30 Pound Gentleman and yeah, tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Cool. So my name is Danny Faith. Um, I'm a creative producer really. Um, so, you know, I don't work in creation anymore. So I don't make music. I don't make design or film. I don't know. Maybe I do a bit of all of those things still. (laughs) Um, but essentially I direct a creative company. Um, and we manage talent. We produce festivals and events and manage large scale events, especially in the sort of house music arena. Um, Manage talent to a professional level, work with brands and companies, some names you might know, some names you don't. Um, and that's usually about connecting audiences to, to brands and companies in ways that make sense and are, and are interesting rather than just like a bit of a smash and grab for, for youth culture. Um, and we develop young talent as well. So sometimes that is giving people paid work opportunities. Sometimes it's kind of more project programs-based sort of stuff. So we're a a registered center for employability. Um, And sometimes people kind of can't separate uh, me from the business. It's kind of becoming that way. But 30-pound gentleman is a business. I am not him.
0: not you. I am
1: (laughs) am not the 30-pound gentleman. I thought you were saying that. I am me, and, you know, the, the business is the business, really. But, yeah, I'm sort of maybe a little bit... Um, I've got a little, little bit of length in, in creation. So I'm probably, you know, been a, been around for a bit longer than some other people that do what I do.
0: Yeah. We're going to get massively into all of that, all of TPG. But, yeah, that's obviously how I know of you. Because I think I emailed you at the end of last year. I um, would just come out of university, And I emailed you saying if you had any advice on steps to take, because I want to be a presenter. And then I ended up meeting you at one of your grind seminars, which we'll get into, that you held in Manchester. And I feel like you really gave me hope and you were someone that I could reach out to when I didn't really have like an idea of a direction to go in. Um, And you just confirmed that I was in the right hands at the time. So it's mad that it's come full circle and now you're on a platform but I've created, so it's a proud moment. That's it's cool. a proud
1: moment. Yeah, that's that's cool. That makes me feel really good. And actually, I, I remember I remember the email exchange about the TV presenting and stuff. And it's, it's, sometimes it's really like hard to respond to to everybody, especially if it comes through like the info channel, which is like the info email address is like a bit of a filter. Mm. It's a bit of a filter because there's only so so much hours in a day you can kind of be like bombarded with stuff. But I do remember responding to you, actually. But I didn't realise that was you. So this is
0: quite cool. Yeah. It is. It's it's funny to look back. Um, But I know there's a lot of other creatives that look to you for guidance in the same way I did. People in music, fashion, sport, media. So we're going to lead into chatting in more depth about TPG. But I've got you on mainly today to talk about, just to like shine the spotlight on you a bit more. Um, because you're always people helping people live out their dreams, but you were once in our position, and you've lived a mad life, which very much <laughs> qualifies you to be in the position you are today. So yes, yeah, so you've left your twenties now. Do you mind me asking how old you are?
1: I'm forty one.
0: Forty one. So mm-hmm. it's it. I love speaking. You're the first guest I've had, actually, but I'm excited to speak to someone that's had their 20s behind them and can give everyone that's listening a viewpoint from having them behind you and not ahead of you. Um, So we're going to delve into your 20s, all the craziness that's led up to TPG, and yeah, because you've been at the heart of urban culture for about more than two decades now, and you've done big things, so...
1: Yeah, a a, a long time, you know, it, it, it kind of feels, it feels longer it feels longer actually it's been it's been probably around 25 years i mean i've i'm very lucky that i come from a time in music making and culture that was really really fertile you know so i've kind of i'm old enough to have witnessed a lot of like youth movements happen you know so things like jungle and drum and bass and uk garage and grime and you know all of these things that are like kind of normal everyday you know, words, everyday musical genres in our homes, or we can switch on the radio or the TV and hear it 24 hours a day. Mm. You know, it, in some ways, when you think about it in that respect, like now is amazing because when I was young, you would have to really search hard to find your black music programming, you know, especially if you was into like rap music or dance or or, or anything like that you were lucky if there was eight hours in a whole week that was dedicated programming to that type of music. But that's where I start, you know, I start in the kind of pirate radio era, you know, and I've been involved in music making since I was a child, mm. you know, so so from our sort of like eight, nine years old is when I started to really consider making music. Obviously not professionally, but I knew that's what I really wanted to do. And by the time I was around 15, I was already in nightclubs and already performing and already hounding DJs to play my music and already going pirate radio stations and even like official radio stations. You know, people like Tim Westwood and uh, DJ 279, especially Max Alex and Baby J., they're the kind of people that championed me as a young performer. Mm. So,
0: Well, I want to go all yes. the way back. I want to go all the way back. Because, well, for people that don't know, you were leading the way as a UK hip-hop in Garage MC in London back in the day. And just as Garage really exploded, really, and just as hip-hop had been around. Um, but this was late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you've made way for rap artists and grime artists that we know today. You made way for them back then. So, I want to put it in more of like a timeline and mm. say what initially made you think, yeah, I'm going to start rapping.
1: That decision was made, like I say, it was made when I was a child. I saw a film called Beach Street. The, and this is like the 80s, so I would have been six or seven years old and that was the first time I saw anybody rap ever and the first time I saw break dancing and all of these kind of things which you know for a lot of us now it's normal day-to-day you know it was it was a brand new thing I'd never laid eyes on it before and it absolutely captivated me so that was when I went okay this is what I want to do and it's what I did you know, so I was the child that was constantly kicked out of class or rapping or beating, you know, out beats on a, a bookshelf or whatever it might have been. And that that sustained that sustained through my whole education. You know, I didn't engage in education. I wanted to engage in music and that was it. Mm. Yeah, so that's a, that's the early that's the early part of it, you know. By the time I was sort of twelve, thirteen years old is that's when I started to break into nightclubs. So, you know, for example, like, there's a there's a club called the Gas Club that people would have heard about, you know, like, in especially London, the 90s, and the Gas Club, the girl's toilet window was in an alleyway, and it was always open, and if you broke in through that window and into a cubicle, you could get into the club, and the bouncers would never catch you ever. Hmm. So, you know, this is the sort of thing that me and my friends were doing as teenagers, you know, as 14, 15, 16-year-olds, so, you know, I suppose... I suppose if you if you think about how young a lot of the grime artists of the early two thousands were um and how they navigated their scene as teenagers, you know, people like Dizzy Rascal, lethal be these people, they was teenagers getting on, we were teenagers getting on in our era, you mm-hmm. know. So I think having a having a crazy mad uh forming years, teenage years and a crazy mad like childhood in South London is what made way for my twenties to be what they were.
0: Mm, they were formative in it. Mm. But then that's kind of ironic because didn't you start off being a bouncer?
1: Yeah, it was all hand in it was all hand in hand because the, the way that the music business was in them days, there wasn't a market for for black music in England. You know, there was a handful of of Rap or garage style MCs before the Imagine this period of time like the grime doesn't even exist as a genre. Mm-hmm. It didn't even exist as a genre yet, you know. And there was even a you know there wasn't even that many people that were MCing in their own accent. A lot of people were MCing in fake American accents <laughs> and stuff like that. So we were like a, a kind of rarity, and the the appetite wasn't there for the public. So you know my record deal it was large at the time, but you know, I mean, it was, it was still under £100,000, so it was, would be considered to be small by today's standards because the appetite wasn't there for the public, you know. So basically, the music business was in a place where even if you was a successful recording artist, if you were making, you know, black music that wasn't commercial, you weren't going to make enough money to not have to have a job. And that's kind of how it was. So for me, being a nightclub doorman, mm-hmm. being a bouncer, it was that was my job. When And I, I fell into that job literally by accident. Um, literally, I was at the Brixton Academy. There was an event on. There was a big fight happening outside. And it was in my neighborhood. And some people that knew me from my neighborhood were there. And they stopped and let me and my friends into the venue and then carried on fighting. And the guy who was running the security at the venue came and said to me, look, I'll pay you whatever you want if you work with me tonight. And that's how I ended up in the security trade. It was all by accident. Um, And I stayed in the security trade until I was around 25 or 26. So even when I signed a, a record deal and even when I had an album, I was still earning money, you know, working in the nighttime economy and still earning street money because you know, it, it wasn't the sort of situation where nobody was signing million-pound deals or deals that were worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. So it was life-changing in lots of ways, culturally, and, you know what I mean, it gave me the opportunity to travel the world and all of those kind of things. But nobody's, like, cash money circumstance happened overnight. So,
0: yeah,
1: yeah working working in nightclubs, it kind of went hand-in-hand hand for me, and it was it was one of the things that basically boosted, like... The authenticity of me as an artist and boosted my career as well. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Lots of the the people that were involved in the making of my music at that time um, were friends from the nighttime economy Ronnie Size and Shy FX and MJ Cole and all of these people were my friends, you know, or friends of promoters and, and people that were throwing parties at the clubs that we worked at. So, yeah.
0: So it all came hand in hand together. Which makes sense. What put you really on the map then? What was the point where it was like you were getting noticed and you were getting realised in London? Because I've read that it was at the Flavour of the Month night where it was like, a is that a battle night? Am I right in saying that? Yeah,
1: no, f- Flavour of the Month was like, to to put it all into perspective as well, you know, okay. London... Late nineties, early two thousands, black music wasn't always welcome in venues. You know, black promoters couldn't always get venues when they wanted them. You'd never have a hip hop night on a weekend, Friday, Saturday night, forget about it. You know, a lot of the time it was either a Sunday night or a midweek night or you know, like a Thursday night, Tuesday night. It was it was always on a on an off-key time of the week because a club knew that our audience would not spend the same sort of money because economically the community was different at the time
0: mm-hmm.
1: not spend the same kind of money and not drink in the same way as like mainstream white audiences and put that kind of money behind the bar and all that kind of stuff and the flavor of the month sometimes it didn't start until like two in the morning it would it, it was on a Thursday night it would start maybe like between one and two a.m. and it would start after a um I think it was a punk night. Sometimes it was a gay night that was on, but rap music and black music was always on, especially in the West End, in the center of London. It was always on either late or at rubbish times of the week, or you know the early part of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, we were kind of like yeah, pushed pushed to the to the boundaries, to the margins, really. So, flavor of the month was a night that catered for us. It catered for us. It was an off-key venue, in an off-key part of town, on an off-key night. On a, it used to start stupidly, but it was it was our space, and it is where you went to have authentic hip-hop, especially UK hip-hop, and there was an open mic there. So the open mic part of the Flavor of the Month was really, really important. You know, people like Skinny Man, Roots Maneuver, um, Ty, Rest In Peace, like... They're the people who, without flavor of the month, they wouldn't have had careers because so they wouldn't have had places to perform. So flavor of the month was super, super important, like for the culture uh, across the whole city.
0: Mm. And then you were you getting up on stage with mad skills? Did you get up on stage?
1: you've done something. You, you? <laughs> oh. did you? I don't know
0: but <laughs> uh,
1: Mad, Mad Skills at the time was um, considered to be like one of the best like freestylers in the world um, and he had a game like a rhyming game that he would play um, but this was quite early in my career this was, this was like the thing that really made people take me sort of quite seriously so I was about 16 years old so I was in the club uh, a DJ friend of mine, Shorty Blitz, he's on Kiss FM now with, with DJ MK. Um, Shorty Blitz is the person that pushed me onto the stage and said, you get up, go do your thing. And they made him take me on the stage. And we played a, played a kind of battle-ramming game and went back-to-back for a long time. And he called a draw. And that is what made people in my city take me seriously as a as an MC. They saw that as a really like landmark moment. Mm. So, you know, from from the age of 16 up until, you know, I signed my album deal when I was 21, I think. Um so you know that's like a five year period of working, grafting, and a lot of things didn't exist at mm. that time. So like there was no um there was no the internet was there but it wasn't working in the same way. There was no Facebook, no YouTube Obviously, no Instagram, no MySpace. None of those things existed at the time. You had to really, really work. And that meant traveling up and down England, going to as many clubs as you could, going to as many pirate radio stations as you could in every city mm. um and getting out there because, yeah, the, the internet wasn't a thing, you know. Like MTV Base and Radio One Extra didn't even exist then either. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a a different process to get heard.
0: So, in those five years from that night to signing with a label, was it just you collaborating with your friends then, which were the likes of MJ Cole, Roots Maneuver, Black Twang? Is that what happened in that space of time?
1: A lot of collaboration, but the main thing that happened is that UK Garage exploded. So when UK Garage exploded, that's when like people started to get real careers, and you know obviously you have people that came out of that scene like um, Miss Dynamite and Soul Solid Crew, people like that. That's my sort of era. Like Dynamite, Soul Solid, we were all active at the same time. Heartless Crew as well. Um, so UK Garage gave us like the real possibility to really earn money. To really earn money, so me being a part of the garage scene early, mm. um, and being able to yeah navigate that scene as well, because it was like it was a bad boy scene. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a scene for nerds. Like it, it was a bad boy scene. You had to know your way around. So for for me to be in that culture. Is what made the record label go, oh, yeah. There's some authenticity with this young artist because he's coming out of this scene, not just the rap scene. So there was a time period in, especially in London, where the rap scene lost um, it, lost some credit and it lost its authenticity. Um, and you know, it was largely when I say rap, I mean like backpacker kind of rap. It it it, it lost its edge and it lost its blackness, you know. Um, which sounds crazy to say, but it did. And um, so UK Garage gave some of that back because it, it allowed people from the street back into MC culture.
0: When you signed your record deal, tell me about that, because you were the, one of the first ever rappers in the UK to sign a record deal. And in the hip hop game... Your main rivals were people in the US at that point.
1: Yeah, in a way, in a way. I mean, there were other people that, like, were having deals and situations with majors before me, like, in, you know, the the mid-80s and the late 80s, you know, and... Like really the foundation of it all is a group called London Posse. So people will know about London Posse. They're like the foundation. And there's a lot of other people, the Brotherhood, people that had deals in between. But I was in my time period, there was like a mad drought of, of interest from record labels in rappers from England. So in this time period, I was one of the only ones who was able to sign a deal with a major record label. So now you have lots of independent labels that are quite big and earn you know, quite a lot of revenue. But at the time, I signed my record deal with Virgin Records, which was like a major record label. So that was a really big deal for, for people. And yeah, there was a time period where, especially in clubs, it's not like now. So at the time, there would only be American rap music in clubs. You'd never hear English rap music in clubs. It just wasn't like that at the time. So I was one of the only artists that would be in the mix with artists like 50 Cent and Ludacris and Missy Elliott and these kind of people that was making party music because we were making party music.
0: That's mad. So you released an album Mm -hmm. with Virgin. Is that your debut album?
1: Yep, it's, it's my only full-length album, you know. I think the the way that the record business was then is that if you signed a record deal with a major label, it was almost like a curse. It was almost like a curse. And that curse is that your, your lifespan just gets really, really short as an artist. Mm. So in me signing a record deal, I was never imagined that I would have a lengthy career. My plan was, you know what, like, I'm going to sign a record deal. Obviously, music was my love. I wanted to continue making music. But, you know, I knew that I would have to learn about management. I would have to learn about promotion, brand marketing, all of these kind of other things because there has to be a life after this. This isn't going to last forever. We always knew it wasn't going to last forever. So that's kind of, you know, it was kind of the curse. You sign a record deal, it's not going to last long. You know, what are you going to do afterwards? So it was kind of, you know, during that period of time, I I didn't have an official dedicated manager. I managed myself for the most part. And, you know, with a lot of help from the A&R at, at the label, David Laub, um, a good friend of mine who is on a run in Portugal, um, who was actually a, a music lawyer. Um, so he helped me, like, navigate that that contract side of things. But for the most part, day-to-day and getting to meet everybody at the record label and learn about their jobs is really what brings me to what I do now. Mm-hmm. You know, So being a creative person that, wasn't, um, that didn't think that they would stay in that creative role forever and have to learn about the management side of things. Um, yeah, I suppose all of the learning that I did then is what brings me to now, really. There's probably not a day that I don't apply none of it.
0: So you went into your kind of music career knowing that you weren't going to do it forever?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. How come? It's always the way that it was going to be, you know? It's always the way that it was going to be. Where now we're in a different period of time, you know? I would say between 2010 and now, there's a lot of, you know, especially MCs, you know, you've got people that are like veteran artists, People like Wiley, people like Getz, and especially people that emerge from the grime thing, gigs, those kind of people. But the market is different. The appetite is different, you know, for, for buying music. And the way that people consume music as well, it's all completely different, mm. you know. So at the time, we knew, do you know what, like, there's no way. Because what would happen is a record label would put lots and lots of money behind you as a strategy They put lots of strategy behind you, put lots of money in the branding and marketing, all of those kind of things. And just hope that lots of people went out and bought
0: it. Mm.
1: And we just, you just know that the public is really fickle. So, you know, when you have a single, it comes out, it does. Okay. It's big on the underground. And then it comes out, you know, commercial release and not enough people go and buy it. Eventually you'll get dropped from your record label. And, these are the things that you have to prepare for.
0: So you were kind you know, of going into it with a understanding what the time was like at the time and preparing but yourself. But not, really. not
1: bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, not like, uh, not with a dreamer's perspective, actually with a real, a real reality perspective of, you know, this is probably, you know, going to be the, the, and, you know, knock on wood it wasn't, but this is probably going to be the first and last time That I'll get to make a significant amount of money in advance, money in one go from from a record deal. I'm gonna make the best music that I can Mm. and release music that I really believe in. Um, And that's probably like that was probably no, it wasn't the worst thing that I could have (laughs) done. But somebody else, somebody else would have tried to release really bad commercial music to try and keep their deal Um uh, and that didn't happen so you know I kind of get to get to look at the album that I made in you know lots of people's favorite lists and you know kind of top kind of cultural icon type of albums and I get to see it there and know that it was great music mm. um, yeah so it's it's interesting because everything I'm telling you happened in a really really short period of time you know so it, my my commercial rap career probably was at its peak for about 18 months. And then, do you know what I mean? It was it was on to, okay, what happens next?
0: Mm. I feel like a lot of it was in 2003. I feel like a stalker because I just know <laughs> so much. But I just read like 2003, 2003 and thought, wow. But that album brought together so many different genres of like including Bashment and like drum and bass and hip-hop and Garage. And it has been described as ahead of its time and like kind of foreshadowing then what was to come after you and having an impact on artists today. So I wonder like what impact do you think your album's had? And like, do you think it's inspired the sounds that we hear today?
1: Uh. I don't think so Not in like Such a cut and dried way I think What my album did Is it It Provided a framework For The music business To know what's possible You know So When I was going, listen, I'm going to have an album and it's going to have Garage on it and it's going to have rap on it and it's going to have like a bit of a bashment style and it's going to have a bit of everything in it. Like the label were like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, because it was at that time, it was, if you're a rapper, you make a rap album. And if you're an R&B singer, you make an R&B album. You know, if you're a drum and bass person, you only do drum and bass. So it was new for everybody. It's very experimental, like for the business as well. Um, so I suppose for the business it stretched the possibilities of what the public wanted and what they could have accepted Mm. you know and yeah it's in lots of ways it was kind of like a bit of a blueprint framework that you know other artists who I suppose might have been seen as quite similar in their early days so you know maybe somebody like Kano is the person that people will say ah you know um, you know Kano's like the new fallacy or fallacies, the old Kano or whatever, where you wanted to put it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it, it inspired people. Like for example, cause the music I was making was fast. Like and at the time it was faster than average tempo hip hop. Some people will say, ah, so, you know, you must have influenced grime, but like not at all. Like grime was his own thing. Graham grime was his own thing, And I was completely detached to it, nothing to do with it. So Graham owns his own history. I've got nothing to do with that. I
0: was going to say, do you take any, what's the word? Do you take any credit for the way Grime came after Garage and kind of
1: gone from that? Or just completely detached? uh, I had absolutely nothing to do with Graham. You know, sometimes it's the arrogance of like musicians my age that kind of think, ah, anything that came after them must be as a result of them, but that's actually bullshit. That's that's actually bullshit. Like, I had nothing to do with grammar. so far away from it. Mm. You know, like, I was doing, like, famous guy stuff. I had nothing to do with, when these guys were, like, emceeing for hours doing what they're doing in a fucking, in a lift shaft or at Rince FM or Deja or Frisky or wherever, I had Mm. nothing to do with that. I was doing famous guy stuff acting a different role. So, yeah, Graham Graham owns its own foundation. I have nothing to do with it, and neither does some of the other people from my era who claim that they do. Like, Mm. no.
0: Did you expect to see the people that are smashing it today smashing it? For example, when you talk about how it was back then, how hard it was for black music, and then now today you see Stormzy on
1: the radio yeah, all the time it brings me great joy man. <laughs> it brings me joy seriously like like in a serious way though so someone like stormzy for example stormzy is probably the first credible black role model that i have no problems you know with like you know my young daughter having his poster on the wall or reading his book or listening to his music or whatever. Like, And that's like, it's taken this long for that to happen. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it's massively empowering, like for young people to see somebody who is like really from where they're from, speaks like them, walks like them, talks like them, you know, shares values and, you know, can shut up the daily mail. Mm. or you know talk to the prime minister with authority and chest you know what i'm saying like that's an amazing thing and mc culture did that and yeah that's very very special
0: yeah very special and i wonder did you face any racial abuse like in the media back then because my brother was talking to me today about how so Solid Crew had it really bad. And I wonder yeah, if you ever I've, experienced
1: that. There was, a, there was a lot of it. Like, we were blacklisted. Like, I, I had a song that got me blacklisted. Like, in England, we get followed by the police a lot, things like that. Um, and I suppose it was different. I wouldn't say, like, racial abuse, but profiling, definitely. And, you know, we were probably the the first set of people to experience that. You know, even people that was out for a good time, you know, like Heartless Crew and people like that would would, would kind of get, you know, a lot of police attention at their events and things like that. And, yeah, we know what that's about. We know what that's about. That's about when you have a lot of black youth congregating, having fun, sharing positive ideas and empowering each other. People get worried about that. Mm. You know, we get we know that their fear is irrational so searching for a real reason is a waste of everybody's time it's an irrational fear just like any other type of
0: racism mm. 100% and it's still festering but it's good that we're going in the right direction and seeing people like Stormzy is what our generation needs 100% yeah, and, uh,
1: he, and and also seeing like the growth in some of these people as well you know like when you see people like Giggs for example like you know Giggs has gone from being one of like the, the having the most of police, the police attention not being able to perform anywhere in the city that he's from to being like a national icon star working with Drake and doing big festivals and all of this kind of stuff and it all turned around in a really short period of time you know so yeah lots of this stuff I didn't think that I would see happen so yeah, we're 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 in a place where there's a lot of good happening for the artists, you know. And I don't know if we'll ever have those kind of things behind us, you know. Even even recently, you know, through 30 Gentlemen, we've had events on where there's been artists on the bill, and you know, the police have been really active in interrogating the lineup and trying to get our event shut down and stuff. So really? I don't think that will ever go away. Like we're in a, we're in a, back in a boom time for MC culture, like a real boom time, life changing stuff for some of these guys, you know.
0: Mm. It's a good thing. I just want to get in because I want people to listen But I discovered your song with MJ Cole, "Live mm. My Life."
1: Live yeah, I don't even life. think I have it. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think I have it. Do you it's, know what? It's i don't, on Spotify. Uh, it, it's really, it's really interesting. Like my mc career is so far away like in my mind it's almost like it didn't happen like it's almost like my 20s didn't happen Mm. you know what i'm saying like it's it's so far away um because i spent a lot of time focusing on the future and what's next so uh, a perspective for you is that You've gone and listened to all of this stuff that I've made in my twenties, right? So all of this music that I've made in my twenties, and some of it's good, some of it's terrible, some of it's seen as iconic, some of it's on people's classic shelves, whatever. But to me, the the difficult thing is meeting people now, and for them to imagine that I hold the same perspective or viewpoint as any of the content, any of the lyrical content, mm. you know. So imagine imagine being forty one years old and people attempting to hold you to the same um, standard and ethics and philosophies that you held as a twenty year old.
0: Yeah. When you've evolved it's, way beyond it and
1: right? your mind is you know, that so, so that's the that's the that's a that's a perspective for you, I suppose, is that do you know what, like everything that you think you know one day is gonna mean absolutely nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're almost in another life now? Like that was your past yeah, completely.
1: life? Completely, completely in another life. And especially, you know, since since my daughter's been like an adult, it's kind of like another chapter completely, yeah. you know, because all of your priorities change. Like, you know, in work and life and business and, you know, and being a parent, your priorities change so much. But your 20s are, are mad. I remember, like... My twenties just being maddening. Like I wanted everything now, all at one time, and you know, it's it's a really frustrating period of time. But then you know, you get to you get into your thirties, and your thirties are better than your twenties. I'm just telling you now. Are
0: they? Once you get past you the thirty should, mark, the scary
1: mark. You, you you should you should really look forward to your thirties. Your thirties are better than your twenties, hands down.
0: Oh, that's exciting then. Something to look forward to. I always think, God, no, I don't want to get there. No offense. (laughs) It's a scary concept, but it's true. I can relate to like wanting. I think one of my problems is like wanting to be successful young because then somehow it's better young. But I think that's just a concept that's put into your mind by seeing someone that you respect in the same field as you doing something young and you think it's only going to be good when you're young. But I agree.
1: Yeah. Agreed man. You know, a lot of the, the young talent that we work with, that we mentor, like they are insane every day wanting to be, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to get to, whether they want to be, you know, the most celebrated, the most famous, the richest, whatever. And you know, the, so, for example, there was somebody that I was talking to. He's a photographer. He said, oh, man, I feel like nothing's ever going to happen to me. I've been doing this for nine months and nothing's happened. And it's like, oh, you know, you're not even a year in. Mm. Like, what did you expect to happen? Like, What did you want to happen? But he's living in an era where, you know, he sees people appear out of nowhere on the Internet, get lots of juice, make some money, do a big brand thing, you know, shoot whoever this whatever famous icon they get to shoot and to him he thinks that it's normal it should happen in four five six months and if it doesn't that he's a waste of time yeah so it's just um yeah i suppose it adds to the frustration of, of it all and there's been some like anomaly things that have happened especially in manchester h is an anomaly there'll never be another h I am DDB is also an anomaly. Yeah. There, will never, there will never be another one. But it's almost like they fucked up the timeline. And when I want to say that that's not like they fucked it up, but like, you seen Back to the Future?
0: No, I'm terrible at films.
1: Bruh. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's wrong with you?
0: <laughs> Your face, man. No.
1: <laughs> so, so basically, right, if, if Marty McFly comes back from the future, and he sees himself or he meets somebody he knows or whatever, he fucks up the timeline. Like, the timeline's fucked up. Mm. And it's almost like, you know, somebody like H or IMDB is like, they've gone into the future, achieved all of this amazing stuff, and come back and crash-landed. Yeah. And just completely, like, fucked up this new history that they've landed back in because it was never supposed to happen. Like, they're the most blessed... Young people in the city, it was never supposed to happen that they, you know, come back as, you know, nominated for awards and celebrated all over the world and doing big arena shows and making like thousands of thousands of pounds, millions of pounds even. Um, but then a lot of other people locally think that that's achievable for everybody.
0: Yeah.
1: And not everybody is going to be able to do that. You really believe in yourself enough and you're dedicated enough and you're lucky enough because I, I i'm a big believer in luck luck is the third component you know you have talent hard work and luck mm. and it's very rare that you get on without some amount of all three and um you know but some some young creatives think that it's achievable for them in the same short periods of time and these are anomalies that they're looking at in the universe and you know
0: yeah it's true we have to be real with ourselves and yeah having a backup plan is probably the most realistic as well and
1: having you know having a craft Mm. you know really really having a craft and really like Getting into the, the, you know, the the, the idea of the 10,000 hours as corny as the 10,000 hours is. It's, it's a reality. Mm. You know, it's a real reality is that, like, look, you know, you can be, like, the hottest or the flyest. You can have all the style. But are you really good at what you're doing? Are you a master, you know, of, of, of the art that you're in? And sometimes you just ain't put enough time in to claim that. Mm. You know, you need to put your time in. You need to really master your craft, and that could take years. You know, not months.
0: Let's move on to how you came to start TPG, and how you mm. came to Manchester. Really.
1: Mm. I came to Manchester in two thousand and four. I think two thousand and three. Came to Manchester. Um, and I came because a a good friend of mine at the time and his sister moved to the city and I needed somewhere to be and I needed somewhere safe to be with, like, a good friend and I came and I was like, yo, I'm going to go to Manchester and hang out for two weeks and I never went home. And that's how I came to be in Manchester. There's a longer story, but that's the version you're getting. (laughs) And... um. I suppose, like, TPG, it took a while for that to happen. It took a while for 30 Pound Gentlemen to happen. And, you know, there's a lot that happened in between me, me coming to Manchester and, and setting up the business. So, you know, I was still in the security trade. So I was working at clubs that people would have heard about in Manchester, like Pressure and uh, North and Elemental, like, hard venues to work in. Um, So I was still a nightclub doorman, as well as still having a musical career. Um, And by the time I started working with young people and started working in youth development, the decision to do that, the seed was planted years before. So, you know, I was on a tour as a musician called the Stop the Violence Tour. like there was like about a hundred artists on this tour every everybody that was active was on this tour it's like you know me miss dynamite Soul solid crew nasty crew like kind of name it everybody was on the tour and it was it was designed to spread a message of like peace and positivity throughout the neighborhoods of england it was sponsored by mtv um as a result of, there was a, a, a girl, a child, who was shot by accident, um, shot by a mistake in Nottingham the same year. So the the creative community all together went out uh, to kind of do some awareness around gun crime for the youth. And that was my first understanding of uh, the type of impact that I could have in my community. You know, so we would go and meet meet young people, meet young artists, go to youth centres, and they they came to meet us, they came to see us. So that's my first understanding of I can do more for my community and I can be more in my community. So kind of fast forward a little bit um, in Manchester, uh, kind of still doing a little bit of security, still haven't had like a proper job. Kind of thing. So you know, I didn't have an email address. Like I, I don't have like education, like a lot of my peers as well. So I didn't go to college. I didn't go to university. Um, you know, I, I don't have any qualifications. Yeah. Um, and I went to a venue in, in Manchester called the Contact Theater. Um, I went with a friend of mine. Never been in a space like that before, and um, we went and pretty much got thrown out so we got there to see a show um i was still in my 20s these times as well Uh, i went to see a show the show was late No, we were late for the show and uh the the front house manager i felt like they were being rude to me but i didn't understand that there was like a, a protocol when it comes to going to a venue like that we're going to see a black comedy show um but if this was a theater so in the theatre if you arrive late and they close the doors you can't get in it's not like going to the cinema yeah so so I felt like the, this front of house manager was being like really like out of order kind of thing so we can't, we exchanged words and kind of getting ready to get thrown out of the building and on my way out of the building I I'm gonna gonna use the use the bathroom so I went to the men's on the way out of the building and I saw a job advertised in the toilet on a on a you know, like a signage in the toilet. And I looked at it and said, that is my job. I'm going to apply for that job. And it was as a, a youth participation manager, as a project manager. Um, and that was applying for that job and getting that job. That was my first, like, you know, proper job, really, working in any kind of youth development. So so I worked at the contact theatre, um, managing, like, music programs, uh, events, getting to work on like some kind of quite mad events for the city as well, actually at the time. You know, so we had like MCs for life. Was there, there was like, you know, hundreds of MCs there. But like, you know, artists from America and from all over the UK and so we got to got to do a lot of like amazing youth participation stuff at, at Contact. But that's where I got working at Contact is where I got to make up for all of the stuff that I didn't do. Yeah. So you know, when I when I started my job at Contact, like I never had an email address, so I didn't know how to use the internet. I, I'd never used Word or yeah. uh, Outlook or any of those kind of things. You know, so I would, uh, when I had my my first proper job, I would stay there till late into the night, like nine ten o'clock, because I would send in emails with one mm. finger typing <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but 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 that's where I got all of my training. That's where I got my training that's where I got a bit more confidence about all of the things that I'd learned through being in nightlife and through having a career in music and not having a manager and learning those other management skills. I got an opportunity to apply them in a space that was designed for me to like learn on the job and get it wrong so that happened in between. That's probably, like, the most significant, aside from being a parent, that's probably the most significant, like, step for me in my 20s. So I was in my, like, middle, late 20s when that happened. Maybe, like, 26. Okay. Um, and I worked there for a while. I did a lot of freelancing, doing similar sort of work. Um, I was involved in a, a club night in Manchester like throughout the 2000s called Merkage, which was like, a, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's a legendary event now, it's not on anymore. Um, but Merkage was a place where I was still able to stay in and around the music business, um, work with the promoters, host the event, sometimes DJ at the event. Um, so I kind of kept a hand in the music business and in this kind of youth participation world. So I kind of wore, wore several hats in that sense through my 20s late twenties. Um and in the year twenty thirteen, I got headhunted out of my job at contact into uh, a third sector organization that did similar work. But they headhunted me into this job, gave me a great job title, an okay wage and okay, maybe this is what you're supposed to do, step up, but it was a bad fit. It was a bad fit, um it it, it didn't work out and yeah we left on like bad terms
0: okay
1: we left on bad terms but that was the first time in ages that okay so you know this nightlife is kind of in the distance and being a doorman is like there's never going back to that um and all of a sudden i had no job didn't know what i was going to do um was I going to look for a career? Was I going to work for someone else? I wasn't sure. Um, and that's where the start of 30 Pound Gentlemen came. And 30 Pound Gentleman started as a project. It was just an idea. It was just an idea. Um, and that's because I was being quite reflective about my future. So being reflective to kind of work out my future. Yeah. And one of those reflection points was when I was young, like, you know, Early teenage, young. GQ magazine was my portal into luxury and it was my portal into another life, into a life that I maybe could or couldn't have, but it was a portal into another life. And that idea of like the gentleman, of what is that and could I ever be one, is a question I never answered as a child or as a young man because, you know, I, I, I stayed in the street really for too long and there was no answering that question so it made me kind of really think about interrogating it a bit more you know in my early early uh, i'm probably in my early 30s by this time
0: yeah
1: so i started interrogating that a bit more and i came across uh, a piece of writing that was about the 30 pound gentleman and the 30 pound gentleman was in the jacobean era so, in like the time of King James the First, any man, because that was the world then, right? It was only kind of opening doors for men at the time. So, any man could go knock on the door at the king's court, and as long as he had thirty pounds, the door would open, and you could go into the king's court, and you could buy a coat of arms, a title. So like a urn or a baron or whatever, mm. a coat of arms, a title and a strip of land and you would become landed gentry. And 30 pounds is what that would cost, which, you know, obviously, if you're thinking about the Jacobean era, 30 pounds is like, you know, it's the equivalent of millions yeah. now. Um, and it wasn't the thing that got me hooked on the 30 pound gentleman wasn't the transactional part. It wasn't the idea that you could pay your way. It was the idea that you would have to hustle so hard and do a lot of social climbing or a lot of social mobility upwards and a lot of investing in yourself and a lot of getting good and great at a lot of things to be able to be in a position to have that £30 in the first place. Yeah. The, the point where the door opens is probably where my philosophical mind stops because I go, you know, not everybody should be able to just pay their way in life. But that's where that's where the idea of 30 pound Gentleman came from. And it started off as a project. And a, a friend of mine who she was, she, she works in youth justice um, and she was working at, I think, Felton Prison at the time, Young Offenders Institution, Um, we started off by writing letters and messages and Christmas cards for boys who were having their first Christmas in prison. And they were like, you know, motivational messages, cards, letters. That's how the project started. And then it went on to being a letter writing project where I would ask people that I knew, that I respected and thought that they were masters of their art to write letters to their younger selves for us to start to share with these other young people that we were working with to see if they could find something in there that served them. Um, And then eventually people started saying, you know what? I'm not so comfortable writing the letter, but I'll record you some audio. And then we went on to having a radio show on Reform Radio, where we would interview inspiring people and then share the audio. instead of the letters and as 30 pound gentleman as a concept kind of grew the ambition for the project for me grew so that's when it became a center for employability so the graded qualifications alliance started to accredit the work that we were doing with with these young people Um, and i suppose what brings the business now to where it's at is um a bit anti-establishment and a bit rock and roll. And I'm not really interested in Arts Council England or funding bodies that are only breaking off crumbs for, like, Black and ethnic minority artists and organisations. I'd rather do without them. I'm not going to come along with a begging bowl for some scraps. So that is why TPG as a business generates its own income and gives back to the community at a rate that the business is comfortable with, rather than just constantly trying to fill in forms and, you know, get free funding, free money drip down from wherever else, especially when I'm asking for money from the same government that, you know, is, is letting cops off scot-free and still killing our people and amongst a plethora of other bullshit. So, yeah, that's. I suppose yeah, it's a bit of a nutshell, but that's kind of how how thirty pound gentlemen came, came about. Yeah.
0: So is it obviously you're the creative director? Mm-hmm. What? Who else is on your team then at the moment?
1: It, it, it changes a lot. I'm the only person that's full time in the business, so I'm the only person that's in every day. I work seven days a week, sometimes six. Um And Zaria Jackson is uh, a, an associate producer, artistic producer. Um She's a fucking genius. Um, but she works really closely with me on the creative parts of the business. Yeah. She's primarily like an art director, graphic designer, um, filmmaker, web designer, like kind of name it. So like Zarea's is like the real creative energy. I'm more just like nuts and bolts and logistic things and health and safety things. And, you know, I'm like boring uncle. Um, And she's like the the creative juice. And then, you know, depending on the size of a project, what we do is rather than expect young people to come along and get involved for free or to come along and you know just do work experience and like if somebody came along and did work experience they'd be doing boring stuff Mm. or they'd be doing nothing they'd be like running errands or getting groceries or doing picking up my laundry or some bullshit stuff you know that's kind of how how work experience ends up so rather than give somebody like a really shitty experience we go, okay, this project is large enough for us to break off a bit of budget for somebody to come and take on a junior role. So maybe that's as an assistant producer, which is usually the role that we create on a project for somebody as an assistant producer. Um, they'll get paid a minimum of £10 an hour, or sometimes it's sort of like a, a, a large freelance fee that we'll put together for them and pay them all in one go. Um and yeah, we, you know, I would rather give somebody a paid opportunity and the space to get that paid opportunity really, really wrong, than just, you know, try and try and rinse. A, l- a lot of people that take on work experience are just rinsing people.
0: Mm.
1: A lot of people that say, "Hey, we've got space for uh, intern," like they just want to rinse you out for the price <laughs> of a travel card. Like, yeah yeah Space so so that's intern. that's, that's that, yeah so that's that's generally like the, the 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 flavor that's generally how it works and then on a casual basis, so you know, if we've got an event on sometimes we'll call you know we, we need somebody to come and jump on ticket collecting or managing a guest list or stage managing or running or hospitality you know stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, and every, everybody will get paid the same rate as well so mm-hmm. it's it, it's ten pounds an hour kind of all the way around
0: so you're Main focuses really are that you create, you connect, you inspire. And that, am I right in saying that your main aim is to kind of guide young creatives by delivering these projects and experiences that, like, unpack culture, get people talking and that are fun, ultimately. And then also by connecting them with brands that are at the heart of the culture as well this all guides young people in the
1: right direction, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about giving somebody a real experience. It's about giving somebody a real experience. It's about, you know, so it's saying to somebody, listen, there's a job for you to do. I'm not going to interview you. I'm not going to work out if you're the best or the worst candidate for the job. I'm just going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to pay you to do the job, but I'm also going to expect you to do the job now. Mm. you know this isn't you know it's 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 not it's not a holiday i'm gonna expect you to do the job too um but also i'm gonna give you like an official email address and you know you can come along to meetings if you want and you can ask as many questions as you want you know i will be transparent with you as much as possible about the business and how and why it runs and you can here's a key to the office and here's the codes to the building let yourself in whenever you want. Use it for your own meetings. Bring some of your own friends around to hang out. And actually, when we're out, meet people. Meet the people that we're working with. Let them know that you're here and that you've got skills and that you deserve to be here too. Trust. So So it's, it's really about somebody coming along and making the most out of the situation because there's always going to be a lot to take away from coming and working
0: in this business. So some of your clients are people like Nike, Manchester International Festival, BBC, NTS Radio, Vice, like the list goes on. And you've got some of your talents that you have at the moment, include people like Chunky, um, Daisy Adams, who's a radio presenter and DJ, Geica or Geica?
1: yeah we work closely with Geica yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah geica is is a, a really good friend, but he's also the artist that I kind of cut my teeth on in terms of management so Gaika's the first person that I officially work with in a management capacity so and and, and we will still kind of maintain that, that business relationship, but it's not really official because he's unmanageable. He's nuts. So it's, it's not really official like that. It's more like sometimes, you know, he'll need somebody who's a bit of a brick wall or to do some producing for him on an event. Like He's like a serious artist. Yeah, so he, he, yeah he requires a lot of attention and a lot of big thinking and brain power. Um, yeah.
0: So you provide people with like consultation, representation and negotiation, it says on your website. But I know you're against the term that you're an agency.
1: Why? Yeah, we're is not that... an agency. Yeah, we're not an agency. Uh, an agency is just like there to rinse culture. You know, an a, a agency is there to rinse culture. Agency is there to, you know, take some money from a brand or a company, um, do as a little work for as much money as they can get. Um, And, you know, just like things like we're interested in the culture. So, for example, if we're doing an experiential DJ event for a brand in store or at at a specific venue or event, like we'll never book a DJ for a little amount of money who's not really like, you know, who's only going to come and bring his own stuff and all of that sort of stuff. What we'll do is we'll put on a really well-known DJ who's really relevant to the culture will put on the best equipment that we can hire with the best sound. And then we'll also give some other up and coming DJs the opportunity to get on that as well. Your average agency isn't trying to do either of those things. Your average agency is trying to get somebody who's got their own equipment and just going to flick 150 pound at them or something mm. and pocket all of the rest of the money, you know? So yeah, we we're a creative company. We're there to create to the highest standard, not really not just be take... an Asian that's just there to rinse. Yeah. You know, and, and, and equally with the talent, you know, with the talent that we work with, the the deal, the management deal that we give the talent. There's a lawyer that I know, love him, work with him a lot, his name's Liam. I showed Liam the deal. And he just laughed at me and said, you're a fucking idiot. Because he was expecting it to be a lot more in favor of the company and less in favor of the talent. Mm. So, for example, like if any, anybody that we manage, they manage all their own money. We don't manage their money. Why should I, as the, as the manager, why should you as the artist have to invoice me, the manager, for your money? Mm. That don't make no sense. But that's how management generally works. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where we, we, we will do it the other way around, just on principle, just on principle. So these are the things that will separate what yeah. TPG does from an agency. Yeah. An agency will say, "I want to be your manager, but I'm in control of all the money." You know, uh, all the money comes in; it comes to my bank account, and then I'll release it to you. You know what I mean? It's it's all all of that's crazy. All of that's crazy. The the the, the manager shouldn't account
0: to the artist it should be the other way around yeah completely agree well, i want to just talk about two projects that you've done at tpg um and your the main project you're known for is the grind Seminar, the grind seminar which is uh where i came and said i met you last year um, and this gives people the experience to Listen to like honest conversation from people that are experienced in the different industries, music industry, fashion industry, etc. And I met you, as I said, at one that Julia Danuga was speaking at, and actually got to speak to her after, which I was so grateful for because the question I had for her, I couldn't ask anyone that. So I felt like it really helped me. Because she's in the actual industry, I felt like, yes, I needed to come to that. I felt part of a community, like, finally, where we were speaking about stuff like, oh, if you need to earn money and do something creative, how do you go about keeping your job? I just feel like it touched on so many industry-specific things that I'd never even spoken to people about. So I was grateful for that. So how many have you done of those so far?
1: So that was the second one. Was that? That was the se- That was the second one. The first one was in twenty eighteen. Um, the first one was a bit different. The first one there were ten speakers. There were ten speakers, and it was all presentation style, like TED style. You know, just people people talking presentation. It wasn't really an interactive Q and A as much. Um, and and also on the first one the type of people that were speaking were at the same standards. So, you know, people who were agents, live agents, managers, record label managers, um, designers, filmmakers, you know, kind of, there's a bit of a commitment to like below the line stuff at, at TPG. So, you know, we know that there's dozens and hundreds and thousands of young people that want to be performers, but not so many that want to be managers brand managers label managers you know the list goes on kind of bit bit below the line so there was always a bit of a commitment to get people who weren't just performers to come and speak and the second grand seminar in a similar vein we're we're always talking about things that aren't necessarily about performing but there were more performers involved Um, and julie's an amazing person like Julia Danuga is one of the most amazing people I've ever met, like in the entertainment business, you know. But she would be, right? Do you know what I mean? Like mm. Skepta's your big brother, Jeremy's your other brother, like you're gonna be the best at everything, can it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but no, she yes, yeah, and I feel I feel like she gave a lot of really honest perspective, you know, and yeah. there were a lot of um there were a lot of young, local, female talent who were interested in, like, broadcasting or, you know, hosting, that type of thing. So she was, like, a, a kind of perfect person, really, to deliver. You know, like, you were there, um, Tilly from Pi Radio, like, lots of other people were there who were just able to get enough from her, man.
0: You know? Yeah.
1: Um and yeah, Mason was a was one of my highlight interviews, actually, as well, yeah. of last year's event. They were
0: very Interviewing interesting. Interviewing
1: the Mason Collective. Yeah, yeah. Just, just being able to speak, honestly. But that's the important thing, you know, is that Grind Seminar is really there to give people, the type of people who wouldn't find themselves in, like, you know, Brit School or BIM or any of those institutions, to be able to hear from people operating at a super high level in a language that they're going to understand and be okay with and you know that's the key whether you're talking about you know tax and vat or you know is it hard to stay in a relationship when you know you've got a career going on kind of just really Mm. honest stuff honest shit
0: yeah Yeah, stuff that comes on the side and what the one thing i took from that interview was um i think it was chunky saying like yeah you're talented no one cares Like no one cares. Work harder. I feel like that fully made me. I can't remember if I'd started my podcast or not. I hadn't. I think that was one of the things that made me like, hundred percent. You've just got to start. You've got to start somewhere. Hundred percent.
1: That's amazing, man. Mm. Yeah, and you know, and, and just doing, just doing things as opposed to trying or thinking about them too much. Yeah. You know, but you know, this is we're also in a time where a lot of young people are very critical of each other but also very critical of themselves especially like through the kind of inline uh the the online kind of world you know where they might be i mean i know young people that are scared to like post their achievements online because they're worried that people are going to be tired of seeing it or worried that people won't like it or it won't get enough likes or whatever and that to me is nuts Mm. That that to me is crazy. So I think there are some people that spend a lot of time in their own head, you know, just overthinking things. And sometimes that comes with a kind of weird entitlement. You know, I suppose it's mixed up with all of the things that we've been speaking about, you know, speaking about the, the people that want everything now, 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 now to happen super quick and mixed in with a bit of like social media anxiety and you know, kind of all of that, and you can end up just not doing anything and feeling like everybody owes you everything.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's neither of those things. You just need to do shit. Do
0: stuff you know, you just well. need to
1: do shit. And if somebody doesn't see it, will they see it next time?
0: Mm.
1: And If somebody doesn't like it now, what well, they might like it. You know, they don't like this song. Would well, they like the next one? Yeah. You know, if somebody sleeps on this podcast, they'll listen to the next one. Like, it's okay. You
0: There's know, perseverance. Doing it for yourself as well. But then also, I just want to quickly speak about Grind Beyond Borders, which is a project you also did um, that kind of connects Manchester artists with other industry peers across the world. So I think you did stuff in Japan. And um, I, know, I think my friend, P.K. Reiko, I think went to Japan with you. Yeah, I yeah, we we'll
1: say. Well, I, I, I didn't, I didn't go with him. He, he went on his own. It would have been whack if somebody went with him to hold his hand. Mm. So it's like, yo, listen, there's your ticket. We booked your accommodation. These are the people that you're meeting. Here's some spending money. Go. So like, he, he just like went and did it, man. That's sick. Yeah.
0: That's sick. But yeah, it just connects people. Is that still going on now?
1: Nah. Nah. It's, it, do you know, actually, it's interesting, actually, you speak about the Tokyo. So we did the Czech Republic, um, Holland and Tokyo and Japan. And Tokyo was massively successful, like really successful. But then all of the footage that we got back we was going to make a film. But we made a full length documentary about the first one, like a, a full like half an hour documentary We shoot. We premiered it in the cinema, actually um with Slay and with uh uh MC from Prague called Smack. Mm. Um but all of the footage just got lost. It got lost and I actually found it all on a on a flash drive like about three weeks ago. What so yeah That's yeah, yeah. so um yeah so the, the, the documentary of uh, PK in in Tokyo with uh, a, a MC called Onjuicy, uh, a Japanese MC, MC from Tokyo, um, is pending. It will be. It will see the light of day because we <laughs> we found all the parts to it. That's so, amazing. Yeah. that's
0: weird that I just brought it up and you found
1: it. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, with, with Grand Bay on borders, ha- how it happened is one of the things that really changed the way that I look at the world was going to Australia. I went to Australia, I think I was, I think I was 20 at the time, maybe it was like in the summer, I remember my daughter was a baby, so I must say it was maybe that first first year, so in the summer, went to Australia, and it was the furthest away I'd ever been. You know, it's, it's probably going to be the furthest away anybody from England's ever been, right? So it's the furthest <laughs> away i would ever been. And it really made me realise that the world is just huge and that there's potential to do everything. If I could be that far away from home, it means that everywhere else in between is just a stop-off. Mm. So if I can go this far once, going anywhere else is easy. Yeah. And, you know, and I should want to go to those other places and I should... I would also be welcoming those places. You know, being in Australia and meeting people that knew all about my culture, knew all about the town that I'm from in London, you know, knew, could tell me all about Brixton, could tell me all about the music that I grew up on and tell me all about the music and culture that I was living, made me know that the world is absolutely there for me. It's, it's waiting for me. And that's that feeling is something that I wanted to share with especially grime artists in Manchester because they sometimes look inwards too much, mm. you know, and it's something that I really wanted to share with them and go, listen, the world, don't worry about if you can't smash it in London, like there's hundreds of capital cities everywhere else waiting for you right now, so you should go and see one of them.
0: The world is bigger.
1: You know, so so, so yeah, The wanting to share that feeling is what made it, made it happen really.
0: So then you've given people the opportunity. I think it's amazing, and TVG is an award-winning business. You've won awards with SME for your audio and visual resources. You've yeah, won... that was the,
1: that was for that was for the first grand seminar actually. Mm. So that was with the yeah. So that was with the the SM, SME news. She like the the smaller medium enterprise awards, um, and. We are the Business partnership of the year twenty eighteen, I think.
0: Seventeen. Twenty
1: seventeen. That's it in partnership with Contact Theatre. Yeah. Um yeah, who were just like remain like good friends, do you know what I'm saying? Like they they're they contact aren't an institution, do you know what I'm saying? Like they're they're not on the same page as You know the royal exchange and some of these other like more established um you know buildings they don't operate in the same way they operate more like us so our values are really really aligned and they get it and that's why we work with them so much
0: and it's good to know that you're both getting the recognition you deserve it means we're moving forward um but i'm so glad that you have come speak to us about your life and i feel like I'm now glad that I know why you are so respected and why people do put their trust in you and why people put their trust in 30-pound gentlemen. And I think it just gives everyone hope. But I just want to ask you, what would you tell your younger self now, looking back? What would you tell your younger
1: self? Oh, this is crazy, you know, because it's a question that i asked a lot of people and I've never answered the question myself. <laughs> Um, just that everything is going to be okay
0: Mm.
1: everything is going to be okay like all of the all of the anxiety all of the kind of perceived hardship that we go through as young people as 20 year olds and you know 16 year olds all of that disappears fades away and all you're left with is the really important stuff you know the the amazing experiences that you have, the weird friendships that make, you know, as long as you're committed to holding on to the positives, nothing else really matters.
0: Mm. And what are your goals for the future then?
1: Really interesting. Um, I think that right now, so the beginning of the year, we we were embarking on a five-year plan at the beginning of the year. So, you know, we were in quarter one when the pandemic hit. Mm. So I can't really plan for the next five years without knowing even, I don't even know what the rest of this year is going to look like, you know? So like I say, I'm I'm really lucky that this business is still here. There's a lot of people that didn't last like the first month of the pandemic. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. I suppose part of that is that TPG as a business is really agile. So we don't... You know, like how, you know, Uber is an assetless business. You know, Uber don't own any of the cars that the drivers yeah. drive and they don't own a lot of stuff. They're like a a really light, agile, assetless business. Airbnb, an assetless business. Yeah. I try and keep the asset levels of TPG really, really low and the overheads really, really low. So that when things like this happen... Um, you know we 're more likely to stay afloat than have lots of things weighing us down, so it 's a business that has no debt, it has no debt it 's had no lending um, you know we, we don 't own a lot of things. The office is a really small office fits three people in it, and it, you know it 's on the university campus so rather than if we were an agency we would have some big flash office in the Northern quarter with a neon sign on the wall (laughs) that we couldn't afford the rent for really. Do you know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah. So I'm lucky that we're in that position, but I don't know what the next six months is going to look like. You know, our clients might turn around and go, we're not spending money in your territory. They might turn around and go, we're done. We're, We're over. Like it's not happening. So, I don't know. I don't know what the what the next five years is going to look like. Yeah, I, I need to. We need to get through the the first part of the pandemic era first
0: for goals to then be built. Yeah. The last question I always ask people is, do you have a lasting sentiment to leave for everyone listening, or any advice? Would it be the lasting sentiment that you left to your to your younger self, or?
1: Yeah, I think along those lines, man, I think along those lines and, you know, seeing as this is the 20s podcast, I would say Mm -hmm. that your 20s are horrible, (laughs) frustrating and hard work, but they're also amazing and, like, all of the throwing shit against the wall and all of the really late nights, partying, drinking and doing crazy shit that you're gonna do are all gonna lead you somewhere amazing. There's value in every single part of it. And it's just important that you remember to seek the value in it all. You know, even if that's a, a good night out, who did you meet? You know, if it was a a venue that you wanted to play in, well did you introduce yourself to the manager? Like your twenties are there to just go nuts and work out all of the possibilities and enjoy it i
0: love it thank you so much for speaking to me
1: no thank you thank (laughs) you really really like taking this um opportunity to speak to as many young creatives that are doing ig live and doing podcasts and all of that stuff as possible you know just to kind of spend this time hopefully sharing with everybody else but then also uplifting as well so this is me like yeah, supporting your platform too, and all of that. Do you know what I mean. And now, Very now we're awesome. even. You you no. did the grand seminar, and I've come to the twenties podcast. And now we're yeah, even. We can play it out. From
0: don't owe, don't owe each other anything. Sorry, thank you so much.
1: No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.